Credibility is the quality of being trusted and believed in. One of the biggest things that Chuck wanted to pass on to the next generation is to maintain your credibility, no matter who you are doing business with. You must always be able to look someone in the eye. Listen in to gain some insight into how this characteristic was deeply ingrained through the class action in the Bay. Chapter 29, Class Action in the Bay, The Value of Credibility. In 1995, attorneys claiming to represent more than 4,500 Bristol Bay salmon fishermen filed a lawsuit in Alaska Superior Court alleging that virtually every seafood processor in Bristol Bay and every Japanese wholesale buyer of Bristol Bay salmon had conspired to lower the grounds price paid to fishermen. Suspicion of price fixing by the companies had come to a head after fishermen who had been paid $2.10 a pound for Bristol Bay sockeye in 1988 watched prices decline steadily until 1991 when preseason price rumors suggested the fleet might get only 50 cents a pound. Angry fishermen tied up their boats, rallied on the beaches, and refused to fish until processors settled for 75 cents a pound. Responding to pressure for an investigation into potential collusion and price fixing, the Alaska Attorney General's Office produced a controversial finding in 1993 known as the Forbes Report. While James Forbes, Assistant Attorney General for the Fair Business Practices Section in Anchorage, made no specific accusations of illegal activity and charged no individual or company with a crime, he did submit a memo to the Attorney General stating, in part, We do believe that the report shows how various parties had the means, opportunity, and motive to reduce Bristol Bay salmon prices in recent years. At that point, it was only a matter of time before someone would file a civil action to test whether price fixing had actually occurred and seek to recover damages. On September 22, 1995, Alaska attorneys Bruce Stanford and Phil Widener filed the action on behalf of eight named plaintiffs and all others similarly situated. The suit asked for punitive treble damages, and it immediately tore the industry in half. Despite the drop in price, not all fishermen were ready to sue the companies that purchased their fish, housed and fed them, stored their boats and nets in the winter, provided them with tender services, fuel, and groceries, and advanced them money to gear up each spring. Similarly, it puzzled many how it made sense to sue the Japanese companies that were paying more than anyone else in the world for wild sockeye salmon at the same time that farmed Atlantic salmon and farmed coho salmon from Norway and Chile were beginning to flood the global market. How would bankrupting the companies that purchased sockeye salmon benefit those who harvested sockeye salmon for a living? Complicating matters for everyone was the fact that the lawsuit would drag on in the courts until May of 2003. For seven intervening salmon seasons, Bristol Bay fishermen would be delivering their catches to the very processors they were suing, and processors would be buying salmon and delivering support services to the fleet that was suing them. It was not a happy period in Bristol Bay history. Relations between fishermen and processors had never been worse. Meanwhile, 
defense attorneys were logging thousands of billable hours. For fishermen, it cost them nothing out of pocket to be an anonymous plaintiff in a class action suit. All they had to do was rationalize their actions. Heck, they wouldn't have gone on strike in 1991 if they hadn't felt that processors were holding out, and nobody liked getting cheated, especially when the Attorney General's office reported that processors and wholesale buyers had the means, opportunity, and motive to do it. And talk about opportunity. Plaintiff's attorneys had named all of the largest salmon-producing companies in Alaska as defendants, along with the biggest seafood corporations in Japan, including Maruha, Nippon Suisan, Mitsubishi, Marobini, Kyoko, and others. Some of those defendants had very deep pockets and other important business to tend to. What would they be willing to pay to buy their way out of a long, expensive discovery process and trial? There were many who questioned whether the plaintiff's attorneys ever wanted to bring the case before a jury. If they could collect enough from defendants in pretrial settlements without having to prove their case, where was the risk? Chuck Bundrant was approached to settle the claim against Trident Seafoods before the case was even filed. Bundrant shared the story in an open letter to Trident Fishermen. Let me tell you how I first heard about this lawsuit. In May 1995, I was in Washington, D.C., and called Trident's Seattle office. My wife, Diane, happened to be on the phone with attorney Bruce Stanford, who had just called in for me. Diane conferenced his call in with me, she was also on the line, and he proceeded to tell me that he knew Trident was innocent and a friend of the fisherman, and that he was acquainted with Gary Johnson, one of our employees. Stanford also said that if we would give him $200,000, he would do his best to keep us from being named in the lawsuit. He said defending a lawsuit would cost more than that. He was right about one thing. I was shocked, but I tried to stay civil. I told Stanford that Trident was innocent and I wouldn't give him $5. Diane and I believe Stanford asked for $200,000 from Trident just to fund his side of the lawsuit. You can ask Stanford what he meant when he told us that Trident was a friend of the fisherman. Looking back on the incident nearly two decades later, Bundrant was more than blunt about his response to Stanford. I said, screw you. When you're giving somebody that kind of money, you're admitting guilt. It was important for Bundrant to challenge the class action nature of the suit. He wanted to limit the number of plaintiffs to those who actively wanted to pursue a lawsuit against him and his company. And he knew there were fishermen in Trident's fleet who wanted nothing whatsoever to do with it. With the help of those loyal to Trident, Bunner appealed to fishermen for support, and the court received more than 1,000 letters from fishermen expressing opposition to the lawsuit. Nevertheless, Judge Peter Mikulski rejected Trident's challenge and affirmed the class action on January 3, 1997. The class included every fisherman who had ever held a drift net or set net permit in the area between 1989 and 1995. Every one of them was automatically a plaintiff, and to be excluded from the case, a permit holder would have to write an individual letter to the court requesting to opt out of the suit. By the time the class was certified and affirmed, eight relatively small Bristol Bay processors had already settled with plaintiff's attorneys in amounts ranging from $10,000 to $100,000. Without admitting guilt, 
they had provided a total of $425,000 to the cause. But there was more to come, a lot more. Norquest Seafood settled for $2 million in May of 1997. Mitsui kicked in $6 million in the fall of 1998. In similar fashion, the defendants admitted no guilt but cited the necessity to move forward with their businesses without further distraction, legal costs, or risk. The money was non-refundable, regardless of the outcome of the case. It was placed into escrow by the court, pending a final verdict and court-ordered disposition. Then, in July of 1999, the defendants got a break, and it looked like the whole thing was over. Judge Mikulski issued a summary judgment ruling that no reasonable jury could find evidence of price fixing on the part of the processors. And in a separate judgment, he vindicated the Japanese buyers as well. But the relief was only temporary. Plaintiff's attorneys appealed the judgment, and in June of 2001, the nightmare resurfaced when the Alaska Supreme Court reinstated the suit. By then, reports estimated that a judgment against processors and importers might top $1 billion. The trial date was set for February 2003. Meanwhile, the tension between fishermen and processors continued, and the billable hours for attorneys on both sides just kept piling up. In addition to attorney time, the discovery process required the defendants to shift their executive and administrative focus away from the seafood business and redirect their priorities toward responding to requests for documents, recording depositions, and preparing to defend themselves in court. Steve Okerlund was Trident CFO at the time, and in addition to overseeing the financial business matters of Trident at corporate headquarters in Seattle, he spent every summer supporting Trident's salmon buying and processing efforts in Bristol Bay. After each season, he would fly to Japan to assist in selling the frozen sockeye. At the same time, he was supposed to help oversee the growth of Trident's ground fish and value-added operations. Recalling the personal time he redirected to the lawsuit, Okerlund said, what an ugly chapter that was. It was five or six years worth of work. There were years when I was logging more than a thousand hours on the lawsuit. You look at six years of that, and it's three years of a person's life. The ironic thing was that during that era in Bristol Bay, we had more competitors than ever. We had multiple cash buyers and multiple established buyers. Talk about a competitive fishery. You couldn't find a more competitive fishery. People were literally trying to knock everybody else out of business. There was no way to calculate the cost of the trial to Bundren himself. This thing went on for seven years, Bundren recalled. I had to put up with all these depositions. Then we had to go to court. I spent four months in Anchorage. For a month, they put on their case. It was bullshit, and it was all I could do to stomach those kinds of lies. That has a lot to do with my health today, I'm sure. For Bundrant, it was a life-or-death battle, and nothing irritated him more than seeing attorneys from both sides being cordial to one another and even laughing it up in the bar after the day's proceedings, as though the trial were a racquetball game. He made it clear to his legal team that he wasn't going to tolerate it. After seeing one of them acting too chummy, Bunnett recalled, I walked back from the courthouse to the hotel with him, and I said, Listen, if you can't kick this guy's ass in the elevator or knock him down, I don't want you to be my attorney. If I catch you talking to that guy like that again, you're fired. That son of a bitch is trying to kill me. He's trying to put me out of business. 
One week into the trial, the plaintiffs got a huge boost when Marobini Corporation, which had global business interests stretching far beyond the salmon industry, announced that it was settling its portion of the case for $25 million. By then, it was clear to everyone that the cost of losing the case would be huge. At the same time, the defense was losing some powerful voices. Nobody was admitting guilt, but the payments were piling up and the sharks smelled blood in the water. Which processor would be the next to give up and let the others swim? After four weeks of listening to and cross-examining witnesses for the plaintiffs, it was time for the defense to take the offensive. Chuck Bundrant was first on the list. He and other Trident executives had prepared themselves exhaustively. They trusted their primary attorneys, Ralph Palumbo and Jeff Feldman, and they were ready to fight. But Bundren had already spent millions of dollars on a case he could have dodged for $200,000 seven years earlier. How much fight did Bundren have left in him the night before he took the stand? They finished their case, and they wanted me to go first, Bundren recalled. We were getting ourselves prepped, and I was ready. I read every deposition and listened to every tape. I gave it my honest focus, and I was a walking time bomb when the plaintiff's attorney called me up. I was at Feldman's office getting ready to go on the stand the next day. They called me up and said, for a million dollars, we'll let you out of this thing. We'll have a plane here for you tomorrow. You've just got to pay up and you can get out of here. I called up ConAgra. They still own 10% of Trident. They wanted me to protect the balance sheet and settle. I called up Corey and he said, no, don't do it, Chuck. Bart told me to trust my judgment. A week or two earlier, Marobini had paid $25 million to get out of it. The attorneys thought they were on a roll then. If they could get us out, there would be a string of Japanese companies that would fall like dominoes. They wanted to extract our money and leave. I took a walk around the block. It was about 20 degrees. I came back in and said, screw yourself. I don't really remember all that I said on the stand, Bundred said. I just remembered my friend Jim Jansen in the back of the courtroom giving me the thumbs up a couple of times. And I remember Margie Johnson's support, and of course, Diane, who was there with me every day. One by one, Trident employees took their turns on the stand, explaining how it was and how it wasn't to the jury. Other companies followed suit for the next eight weeks. The last witness for the defense was Dr. Gunnar Knapp, longtime professor in the Institute of Social and Economic Research at the University of Alaska. He'd been studying and reporting on the global salmon market for years, and he was finally persuaded to testify as an expert witness for the defense when, as he said, it was clear that my work would be cited at the trial. I was being deluged with requests for information from experts working for both sides, and I had seen and was appalled by the economic arguments being made by the plaintiff's experts. Closing arguments lasted for three days. The judge's instructions to the jury took two hours. The jury deliberated for five hours and acquitted the defendants on all charges. There was no evidence that any of them, neither the processors nor the Japanese importers, had conspired to lower prices to fishermen. The plaintiff's attorneys knew their evidence was circumstantial, but they'd hoped they could persuade the jury to buy it anyway. They failed miserably. As the jury foreman, Mike Norris was quoted in the Anchorage Daily News. They said there wouldn't be a smoking gun, and there wasn't even a smoldering gun. It has been said elsewhere that the trial is the punishment. 
and this trial was punishing for Trident, for the salmon industry, and for Chuck Bundren. Of the $8 million that Trident spent on attorney's fees, they recovered $3 million from the pre-verdict settlements that had been paid by other defendants and held in escrow. The fund had swelled to $40 million by the time the trial was over. Looking back at the $5 million loss on legal fees, the time away from his business, and the personal toll on his health, Bundred still doesn't regret his decision to fight. You don't mean shit if you don't have the credibility of your fishermen, he said. That's the biggest thing I want to pass along to this next generation. Maintain your credibility. No matter who you're doing business with, you've always got to have credibility. It's the most important thing. Those other guys bought their way out of it very cheap. But I know. I can look any fisherman in the eye and tell him we never screwed our fishermen and we never will. It's very important to be able to look a guy in the eye. Chapter 29, Class Action in the Bay. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode, Sandpoint, is released on Wednesday, February 17th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams. <laughs>